Welcome back. I am here with Whitley Streber. Whitley, welcome. Hi, glad to be here. Okay, so I'm going to start this interview a little bit differently than I have in the past. So when I scheduled this interview with you, I think a, a few days before when you agreed to the interview, it was about 40, 41 degrees outside. I usually go out at night, look up at the sky, see nothing except stars. And as I came in, I closed the door and I saw a white moth. And I thought, it's 41 degrees. It's kind of cold for a white moth to be there, but there may be some significance to this. It might just be a coincidence, but I just kind of logged it. Then we subsequently scheduled an interview, and this was in February. Okay. So as I'm doing research for this interview, I watch a documentary called The Visitors that you appeared in. And there's a story you relate about you and your late wife about the afterlife and how she would appear to you. And it turned out it was a white moth and it happened in February. And I thought it was a very strange synchronicity, or, or just coincidence. It's more of a synchronicity than you think. It's not a coincidence, I wouldn't think. I'll tell you, I'll get into why. Well, first, to understand the white moth, you have to go to the book, The Afterlife Revolution, which I wrote with Anne after she passed on. She returned, but not directly to me at first. She returned to friends, and I would get these calls from friends saying, Whitley, I just heard Anne's voice. She was asking me to call you and uh, tell you that she was okay. And I realized after a while, I remembered we'd made a pact when we were very young. It wasn't something I thought about. And, and looking back, I can barely remember it even now, but I'm pretty sure we did that the first one who passed away would try to get a hold of the other one by reaching friends first, because we were both much too skeptical. If she had contacted me directly, the afterlife revolution would never have been written because I would have assumed it was in my imagination. But after quite a number of these incidents, it was not possible to believe it was my imagination. And so I, I learned how to communicate with her, basically. And it's nothing special. I guess they call it channeling. And it's not something I'm really very comfortable with doing, but I can do it with her. And we wrote this book, which is full of all kinds of wonderful and wisdom. She was a lovely, wise person in her life, and she, even more so in the afterlife. And she began to say things that were incredibly beautiful. And some have become like the bywords of my life, like the human species is too young to have beliefs. What we need are good questions. And enlightenment is what happens when there's nothing left of us but love. And when I asked her about compassion, she said simply, each of us is all we have. And, you know, if you engage another person with that idea in mind, you have compassion for them immediately because you realize that that's it for them. Whatever they are, that's them. And they are absolutely as alone in that as you are in you. So anyway... The white moth started to appear about uh, a month or so, two months after she died, in funny ways. I was at a UFO conference, and suddenly the camera in the living room began to report movement. And I looked, and there was this white moth flying back and forth in front of the camera. And I thought, what is that about? There's no moths in there, and the place is completely sealed. I mean, I'm away, mm -hmm. you know, I have all the doors and windows are closed. So a psychic at the conference says, it's not an ordinary white moth. I don't know what to tell you about it, but it's not an ordinary white moth because it kept coming back and flying back and forth in front of the camera. Then I was giving a speech and talking about Anne. And suddenly during the speech, my phone buzzed with a sound indicating that there was movement in the apartment. 
And, you know, I would maybe giving a speech, but when you hear that and your apartment is locked and there's nobody there, you're going to stop and look. Right. So there was the white moth again. And I'd just been talking about Anne. Then I remembered that her favorite short story of mine is called The White Moths. And I began to put two and two together. And it went on like that. And I remember before she died, the January before she passed away, she passed away in August of 2015, she began to want me to memorize a poem called Song of the Wandering Angus by W.B. Yeats. And Anne was a very advanced soul. This was long before I knew she was going to die. I mean, I was trying everything to save her. That was what I was totally fixated on at the time. But she knew, and she was already preparing for her afterlife. Because there's a line in the poem, some lines in the poem that go like this. When white moths were on the wing and the moth-like stars were flickering out. Anyway, that stanza is in there. And it, it alerted me to the fact that that's why I thought to myself, she wants me to memorize the poem. I memorized the poem finally. Then the white moth starts appearing. Then I remember this short story, The White Moth. The White Moth is Anne. And so I started writing the book in that context. Then after the book was finished, I was invited to the Esalen Institute to do a talk about the book at a conference there. And while I was talking about the book, The White Moth appeared in the conference room and started <laughs> flying around. This was in February. And everybody applauded, of course, because it was such fun. And then Jeremy Vaney, who was a podcaster on our website, on Unknown Country, and loved his podcast because he's very humorous and he's very skeptical. And she loved all of that stuff. She was not a believer, but she was a very much of a good questioner. So she liked Jeremy's work. So we have a banquet finally at the end of the conference. All the conferees are there. And... Suddenly, in the middle of the banquet room, the white moth appears and started circling everybody. Big white moth in the middle of this conference room. And we all see it, and everybody's laughing and applauding. And the white moth proceeds to land on Jeremy Vaney's head. <laughs> and it's just perfect. And humor and love and the joy of Anne was so completely there. And we're all looking at it. I took a picture of it. In fact, I've got it. Then the white moth jumps off off of his head, flies toward the mantelpiece, and just disappears in front of everybody, just is suddenly gone. And that's the white moth. So you saw the white moth in February, especially. That's a certain sign, my friend, that Anne is here. And look at her back there. She's in this conversation. She well, is, I'm glad she chose to show up, if that's the yeah, case. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an honor for both of us. So I thought you'd appreciate it. Here's the second synchronicity. Now, it's not related to Anne, but it's just a weird thing. And, and I'm going to bring this up as well. So I'm sure you're definitely familiar with Terry Lovelace. Because oh, I know he, Terry, of course. I've interviewed him. So, so I, I interviewed him at, about a week ago, and he related a story. And we'll get into this in a second, but I want to tell you what the synchronicity is first about the 432 hertz frequency that showed up on the interview that you did with him that you couldn't figure out where it came from and you right. couldn't get it out. Yeah. I'll ask you about that. I'll ask you about that in a second. So on the interview, we were just talking and I think it was before it was pre-interview. It may be on the interview. I have to, I'd have to review it again, but I was talking about just a conception of time, how to think about time and the an analogy I used is if you believe it's all happening simultaneously, you can imagine time as a number of radio stations where you're tuning into different frequencies, forward and backward. And, you know, for those kind of interludes where there's you see some fragment of the past or the future, it's just that that tuning, that filter 
is wider than it should be, where there's some overlap, right, between different radio frequencies. So anyway, I just I, I related that theory or idea of time. Same day, I turn to your YouTube channel and I watch your interview of Malcolm Robinson. And he gives the exact same description of time. Now, I did this, I believe that episode aired a few hours before I was talking to Terry. So there's no way to prove whether or not I saw it beforehand. But I, you know, I'm swearing to you, I didn't see it beforehand. But I watched it the same day after talking to Terry, and Terry can vouch for my description. But it was just weird the fact that we would have the exact same concept of an analogy to look at time. I don't know what do you make anything of that, or is that just raw coincidence? It's the common idea that's floated around. Is there such a thing as raw coincidence? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I think that we live in a weave and mm -hmm. we are moving through this weave very intricately turning and turning with the weave as we go along. And the joy of being here is that we don't know our future. One of the first things Anne said after she died was, this is all a game, Whitley. And it's what she meant was, we are here living destinies with side journeys. In other words, it's mostly destined, but there are things that can happen unexpectedly here. And that's the value of it, because it means that everything that happens to us is new, even though a lot of it isn't actually new. It feels new. It is perceived as new. Time is not duration. That's an illusion. Time is the presence of reality. And when you step out of it, you see that this beautiful universe is not a bunch of stars at all. It's a great carpet woven into infinity. And you immediately, what happens when you have that vision is you fall in love with the weaver in a way that you never knew possible before. Because the weaver, the weaver is really something. That's for certain. Going back to the 432 hertz, frequency. What happened? What happened? You mean, why did it show up? Yeah. Well, what's your, I mean, what's your theory? You might not know, but what's I your don't theory? have any idea why that sort of thing happens on my show. It's all kinds of things happen. I hope we're talking about the same thing. All kinds of things happen on the show. There's all kinds of sounds and voices. Dreamland's haunted. It's been haunted for years. I, I, you know, so many things like that happen. I'm not even sure I remember what you're talking about. So you had an interview with Terry and yeah. your sound engineer wasn't able to get out this frequency, this 432 hertz frequency. It just showed up. And oh, yeah, that's right. That, that I have no idea. I mean, it's just so ordinary on the show. If you go back, you'll find it, every fifth or sixth Dreamland has something weird like that happen on it. I don't have any idea. I didn't do any, it. I don't have anything that generates a frequency like that. Any idea why it was 432 hertz? Well, uh, you'd have to talk to somebody who knows the secrets of sound. I know it's a very important frequency. I know that the international frequency for modern music, the standard, is 440 hertz. It used to be 432. It was 432 for a long, long time, and it was changed to 440. And the change has made music less than it was in, in terms of the emotional life of man. And it, there's a push to move back to 432. That's all I remember about it, frankly. Yeah, but. there's certainly some significance to it. All right, well, let's move on to some of the other questions I have. I just want to be mindful of time because I want you to be able to talk a little bit about your book. So the kobolds as psychopomps. Can you say a little bit more about this? This is the supernatural book to yeah. you and Jeffrey Kripal's account. Right. Our book, Supernatural, gosh, we, we had a lot of fun doing that. What it is, is for those who don't know, is a book of where I uh, relate experiences 
and Jeff reacts as an academic observer to what they may mean in terms of myth and meaning. It's a wonderful dialogue sort of between the two of us. The kobolds, the, these are dark blue figures who appear in all kinds of situations. I think they are the ones who conduct souls and move souls around. And I think they tend to show up when people die. You know, there's a movie called Ghost. Do you remember that movie? Yes, uh, with uh, Patrick Swayze. Yeah, and yeah, I think Poopy Goldberg is in it. Yes. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you hear these groaning figures and these little dark figures come up from below to capture the soul. I think that's the kobolds. I think the guy who wrote that movie, he also wrote some other movies. I believe, didn't he write Jacob's Ladder? I, I think so. And he's that is a that is a phenomenal movie, by the way. Right. Well, he was yeah. someone who knew something very special. I've been tried to get in touch with him without success. He doesn't. I don't suppose he doesn't like to talk or whatever. But I think it's a, a it's a very knowledgeable movie. I perceived the kobolds as physical beings at times, and I think they can be if they wish. And I am very divided about what they are, because a group of them showed up back in the 50s. Anne's secretary was a lady called Laurie Barnes, and Anne had found Laurie by we were getting the communion letters from people in in piles and piles. And Anne said she was going to open them, read them all. And it's typical of Anne. I thought it was impossible. I was ready to get a shovel and shovel them out the window. <laughs> I didn't know what to do. And there were just heaps and heaps of them on the li living room floor. So I said to her, look, I'll call manpower. And she said, no, don't bother. I'll find my secretary in the letters. I thought to myself, what is she thinking? And then not even half an hour later, she comes into my writing room and she's had a letter. She says, here's our secretary. And I look at it. She says she's a singer and an actress. And I said, well, she doesn't she? She's a secretary here. He said, she's a singer and an actress. And says, have you ever heard of her? I said, no. So look at her handwriting. That's a professional's handwriting. She's been trained in shorthand and penmanship. She's a secretary and she lives down the street. She came over and she was Anne's secretary for 15 years. And so, wow. yeah, so she uh, had this experience in the 50s. She's lying in bed about 11 o'clock at night. And you understand this is the 50s. This is nothing like this is in the world, in the news, anywhere. And suddenly she notices movement. She's alone in the house. She's pregnant, very pregnant with her first child. And alone in the house, her husband's out on a gig. He's a pianist. And she notices movement out of the corner of her eye. And she looks, and there are these dark blue figures, a line of them standing beside her bed. And it's kobolds. And of course, she's horrified. She cannot imagine what she's seeing. And so the first one in the line says, do not be afraid. We're not here for you. We're interested in the girl child you're carrying. Which, of course, in the 50s, you don't know if it's a girl or a boy. It turned out to be right. a girl. And she's a very nice woman and a very successful woman. I know her now. And I've interviewed her on Dreamland. Anyway. She recoils still. I mean, she's terrified. Yeah, I mean, you, you don't want to hear, and we're not interested in you. We're interested right. in your, your I mean, unborn you child. monsters. And not only are they here, <laughs> they're saying, we're not here for you. But people <laughs> often do see them right after they can no longer communicate in any way with this level. They will see them at that moment. But in any case, she so she would have thought they were coming maybe for her. That's and they, that's why he reassured her, "We're not here for you." In other words, it's not your time. But they want to track the girl. So he says, "Why do you fear us?" And she says, "You're so ugly." <laughs> and he puts his hand, gloved hand on her wrist and says, "My dear, 
one day you will look just like us. And so I leave you with this, and it's a question. Does the human species have more than one form? Is one form moving through the stream of time, as we sort of started talking about, and the other form outside of it conducting us and gathering us into the community of souls as after we die? Is that what the kobolds are? And I leave you with that question. I leave you with a rhetorical question. Does a moth have one form? <laughs> well, I know one moth that has more than one form, believe me. Well, because... Don't all moths, right? They all start out as... Well, they, yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. That's a beautiful point, because they do. They do. The, the butterflies and moths have that chrysalis. They start out as one form. And, and you know, I had never articulated that before this moment. So thank you for that. It'll go into my lectures about Anne. It's a beautiful idea, Sean. Makes the whole morning worthwhile because I hadn't thought of it before. Well, I, I think I saw that moth for a reason. And maybe that was I think the you reason. did too. And I think we're getting to it right now. Annie is a okay. great teacher, boy. She's very good. And I must be her densest student, but she keeps trying, thank goodness. Okay, staying on this topic of transitions. So the key, this idea, and this, this horrified you in the book, and I say it horrified you because it's what you wrote, and it, frankly, it horrified me. So you typically hear about near-death experiences as, as walking or kind of gliding toward this light. And most people, or almost everyone, reports it as this universally positive experience. Now, there's a writer, he's a horror writer, and I know you started out your career as a horror writer. His name's John Langan, and he has a story in one of his anthologies, a short story, about that light, except someone who recently dies decides to go a different direction, and it turns out to be something akin to a cosmic bug zapper. So in the key, you mentioned something about, or the, the master of the key discussed something about soul machines and ways to trap souls to get them to operate these machines. And he didn't really seem very concerned about it, as concerned as you did. What do you make of that concept? Well, I'm... I don't want to say too much about it, except that if you get near, not all, but many UFOs, if you're physically near them, you find that they feel like living beings. And that's because there is a soul there that is part of the machine. And not only that, there are people who have done this, who've experienced this. There's a book out, UFO Sky Pilots, Mm -hmm. that is that uh, grant cameron's or is that yeah grant's book i just interviewed him on dreamland and he talks about the experience of this or how people describe it and it's an experience i know is true you put your hands on a certain board and there are little dots little openings in the board that are the, you have to align the dots, the light on the, the dots, right? You have to put your hands in these handprints and, and, and then you push your consciousness becomes the ship and you're suddenly not a body anymore, but you're a ship and you're flying it. And believe me, if you want a thrilling experience, that really tops them all. And if you read UFO Sky Pilots, you'll find that everyone who does it, it's extraordinary. And not only is that extraordinary, but you go wherever you think of. Except if you're me, and then you immediately stop because you wanted to go to the White House. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, so, so you had the opportunity to do that, and you wanted to I'm go to the White go House? And... It. I'm not going to go into okay. it. But suffice to say... I think it's a lot of fun, and I hope one day we all can do it. It beats driving a car or flying an airplane just all to hell. I can assure you of that. So, again, really quickly, because I, I definitely still want to get to your book. 
So I, I was talking to Lynn B. Cannon yesterday. I was interviewing him for something else, and he had one of these sky pilot experiences. I'm not going to repeat it here because I can just send you the link afterwards and you can. Yeah, Lynn did. That's wonderful to hear. I love him. It's a, I haven't talked to him in years. Well, he told me something off off, and I, and I think I can say it, but he told me something off camera that I'll share with the audience because it was intriguing. So he had this experience. And again, I'll send you the link afterwards because the audience has already seen it. But he described exactly, as you mentioned, the hand print, and he had to align these lights in a certain way. And he was also interviewed by people in the government who were asking him questions about how to fly these things. And when he described it, one of the guys who was supposed to remain poker faced kind of just went, that's how. I, you know, with the kind of implication that we had something and couldn't figure out how to fly it. But yesterday, the only reason he remembered this is he went through hypnotic regression and he had been offered a job to fly one of these things, but kind of said, great, I'll go get my wife. And they're like, you can't ever return. If you go yeah, that's, that's the problem. Exactly. You, you step across that line and you're on the other side. So in the interview, he mentioned all that, but offline yesterday for a subsequent interview that we did, he said that they also told him that if he changed his mind, there was a way to contact them. And he doesn't remember. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. <laughs> He's just like, I wish I could remember as I kind of get older in age and I get tired of this world. I when he's when he's finished with his body, he will remember and he will go where he wants to go. You know, it's, it's, it's hard to re realize because we're so down here in the deep of this dark place. It's, it's a school and it's a hard one. But the universe is built of joy. It's made of joy. And when you get outside of the time stream and you see yourself as you truly are, most of us are joyous. Or, and then there are some of us who get very embarrassed because they realize that, my God, I've made a complete hash of it. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it's also very forgiving and never forget that. I mean, we have this in the Western world, especially we have this fixation on sin and hell and all of that stuff because the Roman Empire was collapsing in the third century AD. And they changed gods from the pantheon of Apollo and Asclepius and Venus and all of those to Jesus because he he was working out for the people who followed him. And so Constantine made him the god of all of the Romans, but he wasn't a god. I've got a book called Jesus and New Vision, which explains exactly what he was and also explains precisely how the resurrection worked why it was real, and why it was a profoundly human experience. The main thing about Jesus was he was redefining what it is to be a human being and trying to wake us up to this. We didn't wake up. Instead, we turned him into a Roman god, and he still is that mm -hmm. to this day. I mean, he must be pissed. I would be. Well, I don't want to go too on too much of a tangent, but you mentioned Constantine. And, you know, as a good Catholic and a follower of history, you're familiar with the Battle of Milvan Bridge? Of course. And the, the shield in the sky? Was it really a shield or the shield with the cross in the sky? Was it really a shield or was it something else? No one saw it but him. Interesting. So his mother was a Christian, very poor woman. She was a servant. And he ended up in this extraordinary place. And at the First Council of Nicaea, he gathered the people, gathered them together to basically Christianize the Roman Empire because it was collapsing. It had been one plague after another and a depopulation of many parts of it. And the Huns were moving west because of a drought in Central Asia. They were pushing the Mayars west, and the Mayars were pushing the Germans west into the Roman Empire. 
and the Roman Empire was in a terrible drought situation. They had no rain at all, and there were famines, there was terrible inflation. They needed something new. In those days, the state and the religion were the same thing. In other words, when you worship the gods, you were serving the state, serving the Roman Empire, serving Rome. And when people were deciding that the gods didn't work, and they were even deciding that gods hated them, that was pretty much a problem for the state, and the state had to have a God they did love and did respect, and that was Jesus. And he did that because of something, basically something called the didache, which is the communal rule of the very early Christians. And it is a very extraordinary rule, a set of laws as to how you live together as Christians, as followers of Jesus. And he basically saw that this community, after all these plagues and troubles, was the only one that was still intact. All of the old guilds and so forth had collapsed. And he thought, I'm going to make this and project this into all of Rome. And he did and Christianized it. But he also buried Jesus, the teacher, in Jesus, the God. Mm -hmm. It's unfortunate. It was unfortunate, but at the same time, if you think to yourself, had he not done it, would we even remember Jesus now? And the answer is no. So he, like all of these great acts, it has a dark side and a light side. You can never say, oh, Constantine was evil. He did a terrible thing. Yeah, to some extent he did. But to some extent he did also a wonderful thing. There are not many people in history you can't say that about. Hitler would be one of the few that you can say, nope, there was no light side there. Yeah, he couldn't. He really couldn't. Uh-uh. Now, I'm going to kind of change gears really quickly. Because it's just a, I'm curious about something. And I I don't recall where I read this because I read it so many years ago. I probably read it when I was a preteen in Transformation. I think it's in Transformation. And there was an event where the visitors had you recount the history of the British yeah. Empire. Yes, I remember. Well, remind me what that, because I can't find my old transformation book. I oh, still have my communion God. book. God, that, that was but... a, an extraordinary embarrassment. When I was young, I was very impressed by the British Empire. And the reason is that my great-grandmother was an imperial. She was born in India. I mean, I should have understood a little bit more deeply when I was young, that the reason they left India was they were burned out of their tea plantation and they moved back to London. And then her father, her aunt, was a famous actress called Mrs. Patrick Campbell, who was George Bernard Shaw's mistress. And she was very famous in England. And when they returned to London, she commented to someone, Augie, which is her sister, my great-grandmother's mother, has returned from India with her urchins. And so she was so insulted, the mother was so insulted, she demanded that the father take them to the ends of the earth. And he took them to Texas. <laughs> <laughs> and lost his life doing so, in fact. But the family, the women, ended up in San Antonio, Texas. They settled in Texas, and she had a big imperial passport and all of this stuff, you know, and we were all very distressed about the slow dying of the British Empire. So when I was a boy, I thought the world of the British Empire, and I didn't know I didn't understand colonialism, let me put it that way, but I do now. They did understand colonialism, and I had had a dialogue with them that maybe we could make something where they would rule this world like the British Empire had. And so I ended up in this situation where I had to recite the entire history of the British Empire in detail, which I did have in my mind at the time. I don't anymore. And as I recited it, I also saw the truth of it, mm -hmm. and it became incredibly embarrassing. And it was clear that that would not be the direction anyone's going in. 
that's that's what you're referring to. Yeah, that's and why were they interested in it? Just to teach you that lesson? To teach me that that would not be the direction they would go in if they go in any direction here. If they emerge here, it is not going to be to rule us like imperial overlords. Well, first of all, do you think they're going to emerge? I have no idea. It's up to them. It is the most difficult and complex situation. In fact, my new book, them. Yeah, I was going to. This is the perfect is, segue is, for is, that. Is about that. Given the question about whether or not you expect them to emerge, how does that relate to your current book, and what would you like to share from it? Well, there is a tremendous gulf between us for a number of reasons. First, they're not a monolithic presence. It's something else. It's really very hard to understand precisely what they are, because apparently they have the ability, or some of them, maybe all of them, have the ability to move between physical and non-physical states. Mm-hmm. I don't think they can speak this way, not even the ones who are in human form, most of them. And there are some like that, but they speak in the head. That means that how do they communicate with somebody who sees an alien and is going wild, his mind's going crazy, and they're trying to talk to him and they can't hear him because he's so excited. I've been there and done that. And it's you have to calm down and they, you can't hear him. So there's a lot of obstacles. But the greatest obstacle is I think that they come in from outside of time. In other words, they're not in the flow of time like we are. And in a sense, that's why they're here, because they want to share our constant sense of the new. The fact that everything is always new to us is probably a very valuable and desirable thing to somebody who already knows the whole history of the universe from beginning to end. And being able to not know that for a little while by sharing our lives with us must be very appealing, if I'm right about that. But they're kind of between a rock and a hard place, because if they do engage with us, our sense of the new is going to be eroded by their awareness of the future. But if they don't engage with us, we're liable to die out altogether. So they're really between a rock and a hard place trying to figure out how to engage with us without ruining the reason that they're here, destroying their reason that they want. And them is, in some respects, a book about how to walk that fine line. And it, it's got two parts. The first part is a group of letters from the communion letters that Anne saved that thousands of them are now in an archive at Rice University in the Archives of the Impossible there. And I took some of those letters and did a very deep analysis of them that when we wrote the communion letters years ago, I was never capable. I was far behind where I am now in this and couldn't do this. But now this analysis does things like a woman is given a name and told to remember this name, remember her name. And I know, I understand now the name. They said the name was referred to things in ancient literature, and I found them all. And I found what the name meant. And I couldn't have done that in the past Mm -hmm. because I didn't have enough knowledge and I didn't have enough understanding. And then the second part of it is about the military and about the fact that we shouldn't really blame the government for the secrecy. We do that. We all, oh my God, they're keeping these secrets. How dare they? They were tricked into doing it. And I show in the book precisely how that was done because the visitors did not want to emerge. They wanted to warn us about the environment and about the dangers of nuclear war without emerging. 
But I don't think the warning has been successful and they're going to have to come closer. So I don't know what they will do, but they will do the absolute minimum they need to galvanize us to save ourselves. And if, if that ends up being so much that it destroys our value to them, they might just leave. So be aware of that. Let me read a couple of things from the book that will enlighten you a Absolutely. little bit. Yeah. A huge undertaking is going on here. And to me, it is fantastic that on so many levels, it is being methodically denied and ignored. But before we lay blame for this on any part of the human side of the relationship, I will shortly demonstrate that from the beginning, it has been our visitors who have orchestrated the secrecy. They brilliantly ensured that governments would drop a cloak over their presence. And while they are certainly very clever, their motives for doing this, and therefore the policies and actions they have taken can most assuredly be understood. And that understanding is in the book, and it's quite clear. Mitch Horowitz wrote a preface. Jacques Vallée volunteered a forward. In the preface, Mitch says it's the most important book about this subject since Jacques published uh, Passport to Magonia oh, in wow. 1969. And then Jacques obviously agreed because he proceeded to write a forward. And Jeff Kripal wrote an afterward. A lot of people, gosh, Colm Kelleher wrote a nice blurb. Hal Putoff wrote a blurb. Leslie Keen wrote a blurb. Jim Semivan wrote a blurb. John Alexander wrote a blurb. There are a whole bunch of people that wrote blurbs. So the book is reaching those people. And uh, the people who really know what's going on or are, are as close to really knowing what's going on as anybody. And here's another quote from the book, and we can sort of wind it up from this. Can we ever come to terms with all of this? Right now, we also are a house divided against itself when it comes to our visitors, with our best minds still in a state of almost total denial, and the community of experiencers forced to keep a low profile if they value their places in society and the economy, and sometimes even in their own homes. Our governmental leadership is caught in the bear trap of secrecy sprung on it by the visitors and our intellectuals frightened to their core to face the fact that they are not the most knowledgeable species on planet Earth, willingly embrace official denial is truth. We have to get past that. We have to somehow. So the, the denial has also enforced public passivity. The great vast majority of people don't care about this at all. They think it's nonsense. They, they're not interested. If you ask them if UFOs are real, let's say, yeah. But if you ask them, they have anything to do with you, you'll say no. And as far as close encounters are concerned, a small percentage believe they might happen. But are they important to them? Absolutely not. It, it, probably our main chance of surviving and becoming a star walking species depends on how this is handled, not only by us and certainly not by the government. This is up to the people. It's up to us and the visitors. And if you look around, you'll find people on the internet, like there's a guy in Texas who live streams UFO sightings every night in North San Antonio. And there's John Martin who puts up videos of UFOs, and they're not satellites. They're definitely not satellites. Neither of these guys are stupid. They're not filming satellites. They're filming things that show up for them. And they're not drones. And then there's Melinda Leslie in Sedona who takes tours out to see UFOs practically every night, weather permitting. And this is growing. People are beginning to see the lights in the sky and they're beginning to respond to the present. People, if you ask, you get a response quite often. If you go out there with a camera every night, and sit there, John Martin plays his guitar. He's a classical guitarist. And oh, he's, yeah, yeah. He's such cool to listen to. Oh, beautiful. He's playing his guitar and saying, oh, my friends, you're so beautiful. Thank you, thank you. And the guy in San Antonio, he's using his camera and he's looking out there. And he took some fabulous material just recently of a UFO flying around in front of a huge thunderstorm. 
I mean, it's cool stuff going on out there. And it's happening with the people. The government is all frozen, solid. You've got some people in the Defense Department who want to say more, bring out more. The basic position of the Defense Department is deny, 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 and it's not changing. Sort of what's happening is I think that some of the congressmen are being very quietly briefed about certain things that are the reason that the government can't talk about this. And that gets back to the abductions. And that is the elephant in the room. That they happened. That sexual material was taken from men and women, including this guy. And they couldn't do anything about it, the government. And so they lied. And they made light of it. And they made these people into laughingstocks using social engineering techniques through the media. No, no, they'll never admit to that. But that's the only admission that really matters. Yeah, I think there are a number of things, too, that the government did that. Let's say they have a craft, if you believe the Wilson memo, or they've had, you know, they have materials and they've given it to a aerospace company, right? Well, any aerospace company that went bankrupt after that moment is now entitled to suing the government for favoring one. They're, they're not only not only yeah. just the personal, like the horrors of abducting people, but also just practical legal implications and how unraveling you, all that. How did you come to that? Because you know that do you know that that's been discussed internally very extensively in the government? And it's not just aerospace companies, it's all kinds of companies. There have been all sorts of materials bled out into the public space that have been used by certain companies. And, and I talk mm -hmm. about that in my book. The companies that had a classified track already in place were the ones that were chosen to be given this technology but not their competitors. So right. the government's got a real monkey on its back now because these companies, some of them have prospered extraordinarily at the expense of their competitors. And their competitors have sometimes been even destroyed or made less profitable because they did not get these secrets. And there was no legal reason for the government to do it that way. They did it for expediency. Because they mm -hmm. wanted to keep this all secret. They wanted to keep it secret for military reasons and to hide the abductions. And so th they would find a company that was already engaged with the DOD and had a classified track that they could put this through. They would get somebody to file a patent and then give the company the, hey, psst, take a look at that patent. And the company would go, hey, this is really good. We can do this. They'd license the patent. The guy would get very rich, and the the technology would go out into the world. That's the way it worked for years. Now, they are in a situation where if they admit that they've been doing this, there's going to be a hell of a lot of lawsuits. There is going to be a big stink, and they know that. So they've got that, and they've got the abductions. Well, and there's there's also certain aspects of the abduction. So let's take the Terry Loveless case as an example. And you know, he shared with me his X-rays. One X-ray looks like a very exotic, petal-shaped device that is made of his own bone tissue, but it's clearly not natural. Something implanted it in him. But then he had a second implant that looked like an RFID chip that had two wires coming out of it. And to me, I have an undergraduate degree in electrical engineering. Like that's not, that's human. Like some somebody or some agency had to have implanted that in him. And my guess is just, it's to either track him and or to monitor any signals that are coming off that other device because it's in the same knee or, you know, positions around yeah. the same knee. And then when he tried to get it removed in Mexico, several nights before the operation, someone had drilled two holes into both knees and had removed it. 
So that's not something an advanced civilization would do. Having been a former military officer, that's the kind of stupid stuff that somebody would do. Let's do both knees because we're not sure. That sort of thing. And there may even be cases where someone who is a whistleblower may have been silenced through assassination. How do you handle that? So, yeah, it's going to be a a tough nut to crack. I don't think the government's ever going to come public with it. I think it would destroy this fabric of society if they came public with everything that's happened. My implant here uh, was put in by people, uh, two people. I saw them perfectly clearly. I just couldn't stop them. They weren't aliens, and there was someone in the backyard as as well. There were a lot of people around at the time, the house. So, yeah, but these people are not, and this is what isn't understood, I don't think. They're not necessarily working for the government. They are using the Defense Department's resources, but that's not who they answer to. And that gets into the whole business of the interface between our government and the visitors, which is very complex and extensive, I would assume, and that is there to make sure that everything proceeds along the lines that the visitors want it to proceed. And it may not be in our best interest. I don't know. I couldn't say that. I couldn't say it's all in our best interests. And I think that you know, anyone who has to keep secrets might have more than one reason for doing so. I mean, they took sexual material, they took my semen, and they took women's eggs. And I'm sorry, that is a secret I want revealed. I want to know what happened. This is my life. Everything I have of me was taken And something was done with it that I don't know anything about. What? Do you ever see the chain-smoking man? Yeah, probably now man. Uh. You know, I just don't want to go into it. Suffice to say that that's a very big part of this that I'm not Mm -hmm. really ready to discuss yet. No, I'm not going to discuss that at all. Totally understand. Well, I want to be respectful with your time. I think we're about nine minutes over. Thank you very much. And you have a book to sell. So thank you very much, Whitley. And I'd love to have you back at some point in the future, and I'll reach out to you through all the channels. Yeah, reach out. I'm available. I'm horribly difficult to get when I'm writing, but I'm not writing for the next six months at least. So I'm available. All right, my friend. Thank you very much. You have a fantastic day. It was a great interview, Sean, and I appreciate it very much. Thank you, Whitley. If you enjoyed this video, please click on like, subscribe, and the notification button so that you're alerted anytime I post something new.